18. Our times are in the Lord's hands. Those were three of my favorite songs, by the way, Vicki. Guess the Lord knew. I don't know. (laughs) I know. Well, for everyone who has a question in their mind and who's like, where the heck is Pastor Knapp? Everything's fine. He's okay. He gave me the grace to to have one more time to teach um, right now. So everything's good, and he's good, so rest assured. Today we're going to be continuing in our Christ in the Passover series, and this is part 35. You may want to turn in your Bibles to Luke twenty-two fifteen, and also you may want to have Genesis. That's at the beginning, if you don't know where that is. <laughs> you want to have Genesis uh, open one, chapters one through three, we're going to be kind of trafficking through there as well. And this is a continuation of what we were talking about last week on the subject of eating. We introduced that subject last week, and we're going to continue on that because it ties in to Christ and the Passover, this series, intimately, actually. So, throughout the four Gospels... In one place in the book of Acts, there are 55 verses within 35 passages where Jesus is eating or was said to have eaten with someone. 55 verses within 35 passages. Now, this spans from the Pharisees who invited him to dine or Jesus eating with sinners and tax collectors, or, and obviously him eating with his disciples. There are eight different Greek words that are used throughout these 55 verses. And granted, that some of these instances of Jesus eating are congruent passages throughout the Gospels. But that only serves to bolster the point that I'm making here is that the Spirit deemed it so important to have an occasion of Jesus eating documented by different human authors that emphasized distinct nuances around these meals in which Jesus ate. The list of 55 verses doesn't even include the times when it's implied that Christ ate when he went up to the feast. Oftentimes you you see in John especially that he went up to the feast. Well, when you go up to the feast, eating happens. But that doesn't even include those times. That would be an addition to these 55 times. Therefore, the Spirit thought it necessary to include these instances of Jesus eating in the four gospel accounts of his life. The question is why? Why? In addition to the times it's documented that Jesus ate, the Lord also 
incorporated eating into many of his teachings and into the parables. The subject of eating pervades the spirit-led description of our Lord on this earth. Again, I'll ask the question, why? There's nothing that's put in the scriptures that isn't there for a reason. What's so important about Jesus eating and sharing a meal with people that is documented so many times? Now, we've already begun to answer that question, whether you realize it or not, in our last teaching of why the Hebraism. Therefore, we're going to continue with our launching passage. I call it a, I call it a, I'm calling it a launching pass, passage instead of a launching pad. It's our launching passage in Luke 22.15. And we're going to explore where this leads us in our quest for discovery. Luke 22.15, again, this is my translation. And he said to them, this is Christ speaking, and he said to them, with intense longing, I have long to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Now, this little preposition, pros, P-R-O-S, pros, this preposition, pros, in the beginning phrase of this verse, and he said to them. The English word to is pros there. So this little preposition pros in the phrase, and he said to them, it's governed by one of three cases in the Greek. It's either governed, governed by the genitive, the dative, or the accusative. And the accusative cases where it appears most often in the New Testament Greek. And here in Luke twenty-two fifteen, it's in that most often used accusative case. Now, there's a lot that is said about this preposition pros and all the lexicons that I consulted. Some of them have a few different pages. But the thing that caught my eye was from the good old Strong's and the Strong's Hebrew and Greek dictionaries, to be exact. In their Greek dictionary... They state with regard to the word pros, usually, quote, I'm quoting now, usually with the accusative case, the place, time, occasion, or respect with which is the destination of relation. And that caught my eye. The idea presented by Luke in the documentation of Christ addressed to his disciples in the verse, is that Jesus has come to the destination of his mission on which he was sent by the Father. That is the cross. He's come to that destination. In so doing, he said to them, that word pros right there, he said to them how much he had longed to show them what the culmination of this mission would be in the inauguration of the Eucharist during this authentic Passover meal. Now, they wouldn't understand this at this time, but they would after he raised from the dead. They would start to get a little bit more understanding. 
according to Luke 24, 6 through 8. Jesus came from the Father, and he was going back to the Father, as we saw in the shadow of Jacob's journey to Mesopotamia, on which Jacob was sent by his father, Isaac. John 13, or John 13, 3, Genesis 28, 2, Genesis 31, 30, and Luke 22, 15. The omnipotent, indestructible God of the universe humbled himself and entered into his creation as God and man in one person. As Jesus entered into his creation, the indestructible God made himself vulnerable to death taking on flesh. He humbled himself being born into this creation as a helpless baby. And he would entrust himself to his heavenly father all the days of his life. Every moment of his life, he would entrust himself to his heavenly father. This total confidence in his father's plan would lead Jesus to the cross where he would complete his mission on which he was sent, John 19.30. This was the destination of this mission that was known by the Trinity before the world was formed 1 Peter 1, 19 through 20. Jesus is now speaking to those disciples that he had handpicked throughout his earthly ministry and with whom he had such an intimately close relationship. Therefore, at this destination of Jesus partaking in this meal with those of such close relation, he tells them with intense longing, I have longed to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Now, as Pastor Knapp has said many times in the past, minute exegesis leads to major insight. And this little preposition pros is evident of that. Now, at this time, I want to bring forth a quote from a book by Sergius Bulgakov. The Lamb of God. Pastor Knapp has talked about this book in the, in the past, and it's an excellent book. But I'm going to bring forth this quote that Mr. Bulgakov has in The Lamb of God. This particular quote, it's been on my mind for months now, and it's intricately tied to the subject that we've broached about the Lord eating with people. Now this can be found, if you have that book, this can be found on pages 213 to 214 in the Lamb of God. So here we go. It's a little lengthy of a quote, but it's well worth it. Quote, Only the word of God, moved by the Holy Spirit, who penetrates the deep things of God, 1 Corinthians 2.10, could from God tell about God that he became his own creature, 
These words of the prologue to the Gospel of John expresses the content of the whole Gospel. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, John 1.14. And then he goes on to say, God left the supra-mundane absoluteness of his being and became the creator. But the creator, the word, by whom all things were made, as this very same prologue forcefully points out in John 1.3, himself became a creature. From his absoluteness, he descended into creatureliness, end quote. That is packed full. Now, let's define a couple terms that Mr. Bolgakoff uses in this statement. First, what is supra-mundane? I'll spell that for you. S-U-P-R-A-M-U-N-D-A-N-E. Supra-mundane. Well, supra means above or beyond, in addition to or before the time of, and that's according to the Oxford Dictionary of English Etymology. Mundane is worldly or earthly or the universe of celestial bodies. So when we put those two words together to get supra-mundane, you have the meaning of above and beyond the worldly or earthly system. Next, what is absoluteness? Absoluteness. According to the Webster Dictionary from 1828, absoluteness means independence, complete in itself. Absoluteness, complete in itself. When God left the supra-mundane absoluteness of his being and became the creator, he did so not because he had a need to or because he needed something from the creation. He did it because he wanted to. As mankind, who is made in the image of our creator, we have the tendency to want to create. But when we create something, it's somehow for our own benefit. Somehow it's for our own benefit. To give you a couple examples, the automobile was dreamed up and created. It was made to make it easier and faster to travel, so you wouldn't have to spend a lot of time on horseback or walk for miles on end. A house is made for protection from the elements and intruders. There's a reason behind it. It benefits us somehow. The computer was invented to make work 
and communication faster and more streamlined. Some people would argue with that, like my wife, Jen. She hates computers. But that's what it was made for. It was made to help us out somehow. We were going to reap a benefit from it. Now, some may say that art doesn't fit into this category, but actually, when you think about it, it still does. It still fits in that same category. When someone paints a picture, it may be therapeutic for them to paint. It's a release for them. Or if someone writes a song, it's a way to express their feelings. It's benefiting them because they're getting it out. They're expressing their feelings. It still benefits us in some way, shape, or form when we create something. There's nothing that we can create that doesn't somehow come back and benefit us. But when God who was above and beyond everything, became the creator. He did so out of his absoluteness. Meaning, he didn't need anything from the creation, but he created it so that he could put his goodness into it. He didn't need anything at all from us, the creation, but he did it so that he could put his goodness into it. We, as the creation, we can't give or do anything for the creator, but he does everything for us. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. James 2, 17, I think, if I remember correctly. Now, hopefully this will get clearer as we go. As a matter of fact, I think I'm going to go back and read that quote one more time, just so that it can be in your mind. I'll just go through it quickly, but I want that to be in your mind. Quote, only the word of God, moved by the Holy Spirit, who penetrates the deep things of God, 1 Corinthians 2.10, could from God tell about God that he became his own creature. These words of the prologue of the Gospel of John express the content of the whole Gospel. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, John 1.14. God left the supra-mundane absoluteness of his being and became the creator. But the creator, the word, by whom all things were made, as this very same prologue forcefully points out in John 1.3, himself became a creature. From his absoluteness, he descended into creatureliness. I want to introduce this subject now because what's housed within this quote 
by Sergius Bulgakov. It's going to have great relevance as we continue in this subject of eating. It's really going to have a lot of impact into that. Not only in this message, but as we progress on this subject. Eating is not only prevalent, it's not only a prevalent subject in the Gospels, but it's all through the Scriptures. As I said in our last message, it's almost in every book of the Bible. Almost in every single book of the Bible you'll find eating. Eating was the means by which Esau gave up his birthright to Jacob in Genesis 25. He sold his birthright for a single meal, as Hebrews 12, 16 documents. Isaac was duped into blessing Jacob during a meal that was prepared for him while he was eating in Genesis 27. Eating of the Passover lamb in Egypt, eating of the Passover lamb in Egypt was instructed to be done for protection of the firstborn males in Exodus 12. Now, after the Israelites got to the promised land, after the 40 years, after they got to the promised land, what was the first thing that they did? They celebrated the Passover. They celebrated the Passover by eating. And then the manna which sustained them for 40 years in the wilderness ceased the very next day, Joshua 5. You see how eating is around a bunch of different subjects in the scriptures? And this is just a few examples. Now, all of these other things would be profitable to study in their own right, but we're not going to traffic in those per se we have, I have a few different target passages that will directly give us a little bit more understanding of what Jesus is saying in Luke twenty-two fifteen. Now, the first passage that we're going to investigate is all the way back at the beginning of the Bible in the garden. So you may want to turn back to Genesis. There, eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil would be the reason for the fall. This act of disobedience on the part of, part of Adam would send the entire visible creation into a fallen state, not just humanity. The entire visible creation fell when Adam disobeyed. Now, before we get to that place that we talk about Adam's fall, I want to first draw your attention to something that happened on the sixth day of the creation narrative. Now, whether or not you're of the mindset that the seven days of creation were literal days or metaphorical, it really doesn't matter for this purpose right here. That would be a subject for a different day. The fact remains that there's a distinct point that the Lord makes on the sixth day that demonstrates what he creates is good compared to what infiltrated the creation. Let me say that again. 
there's a distinct point that the Lord makes on the sixth day that demonstrates what he creates is good compared to what infiltrated the creation. After God created humanity in Genesis 1.28 on the sixth day, the scriptures bring up a very interesting point in Genesis 1.29 through 31. Here the Lord is talking to Adam, and he proceeds to tell him in verse 29, And God said, See, I have given to you every herb sowing seed which is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. This will be yours for food. And to all the animals of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to every creeping thing on the earth in which is the breath of life, every green plant is for food. And it is so. And God saw all that he had done, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Now in these three verses, a parsing of the Greek word pas is used seven times. What I mean by that is Different forms of the lema, pas, is used seven times. That word pas means everything or all. That's why I was emphasizing every or all in when I was reading that. The Lord is making a the, the Lord is making the crystal clear point that everything that He created was good. He's making it crystal clear. Everything that he created was good. He even says so in verse 31, emphasizing that all that he created was very good. There was nothing bad about it. Next, the Greek word for food in the Septuagint is brosis, B-R-O-S-I-S which appears in the Gospels five times. That same word, brosis, for food, appears in the Gospels five times. Now, this is in addition to the references I made at the beginning about Jesus and the book of Acts, about his 55 times that it's talking about him eating. That's in addition to that. So I didn't even count that in there. The point that I'm making is that Every seed-bearing plant and every fruit-bearing tree was good for food for man. Every one of them were. And they were also good for all the animals, the creeping things, and the birds of the air. Now, bear in mind before anybody goes out and eats a poison ivy leaf or something like that, this was before the fall. As you remember, I said that when Adam fell... All the creation fell. So don't go out and say, hey, I got poison ivy in my throat now. That guy told me that everything was good for eating. No, don't do that. There are plants which are poisonous now, but there wasn't any then. There was no death. 
That even goes back to many people think, and I'm one of them up to this point in time, that there wasn't, animals were all eating the vegetation. They weren't eating each other. There was no death before the fall of Adam. They weren't, there wasn't a lion going to kill a lamb. They didn't know what death was at the time. Whatever God made was good. And that's why they could eat anything. And no harm would come to them if they ate it. Because it would be nourishing and good for them. Now chapter 2 of Genesis. Chapter 2 starts off with the seventh day and God resting. And then goes into an abridged version of chapter 1. And the creation narrative. It kind of goes back into that. It continues as this chapter gives more detail about the Lord creating man and putting him in the garden in Genesis 2, 7 and 8. Next in Genesis 2, 9, we have a very interesting verse, especially when compared with what we just looked at, Genesis 1, 29 through 31. This is Genesis 2.9. And out of the ground, God furthermore made to grow every tree that is beautiful to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowing what is knowable of good and evil. I'm going to read that again. And out of the ground, God further made, and out of the ground, God furthermore made to grow every tree that is beautiful to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree for knowing what is knowable of good and evil. In Genesis 1, 29 through 31, we read that every tree that God created was good for food. Every tree. He makes a very distinct point. Every tree that I created is good for food. Here in the beginning of Genesis 2, 9, we again see that every tree God made was good for food in the garden. Now, this agrees with the ending of the sixth day of creation when God looked at what he had made, and behold, it was very good. But in the second half of Genesis 2.9, we see that the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil were also in the garden. To further add intrigue to this point, God would give a command to Adam in Genesis 2, 16, and 17 regarding all these trees. Genesis 2, 16. And the Lord God commanded Adam, saying, You may eat for food of every tree that is in the garden. Verse 17. But, of the tree of knowing good and evil, you shall not eat. 
on the day that you eat of it, you shall die by death. What? Wait a second. I thought that God was done creating on the sixth day and that he told Adam that every tree that he created was good for food. Every tree that bore fruit was good for food. I thought that's what he said in Genesis 1, through 31. How does this mandate to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in Genesis 2, 17, jibe, not jive, jibe with Genesis 1, through 31? How do they connect? I saw Pastor Brown back there with a little smile on his face because he knows something's coming. <laughs> The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was put in the garden by God along with the tree of life, as we saw in Genesis 2.9. It was put there. And that's just it. That's just it. These trees were put there by God, but they weren't created by God. Why? Why? Because these things already existed. These things already existed. What do I mean by these things? Well, let me explain. The tree of life possessed the ability to extend life according to Genesis 3.22. This is the life that God is that doesn't die. This life always existed in God, so it wasn't created. It was just housed within that tree of the garden. It was housed within it. That life was not created. It's the life of God. It was just housed within that tree. So God didn't want Adam and Eve to eat of the tree of life after being spiritual, spiritually dead and be stuck in that state. If you go to the end of Genesis 3, he didn't want them to eat of that tree of life afterwards. He said, now that they are like us and know good and evil, We have to drive them out of the garden lest they take and eat of the tree of life. God was merciful to us as humanity in that sense. Therefore, he drove them out of the garden and put a cherubim with a flaming sword in front of the entrance of the garden. As I said, it was his mercy that kept them from eating of the tree of life after... They were dead in their sins. It doesn't say anything about not eating of it beforehand. Wrap your mind around that. Because if they would have ate of the tree of life after they were dead in their sins, they would have been locked into that state. So God drove them out of the garden and guarded the entrance to the garden 
with a cherubim, with a flaming sword. Now, how about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Again, what this tree had in it already existed. Because of Lucifer's sin of wanting to ascend to the throne of God. Isaiah 14, 12 through 15 in connection with Luke 10, 18. God didn't create the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but only housed what was already in the immaterial, the immaterial universe within this tree and commanded the man not to eat of it. This already existed at this time because of Lucifer's fall. And so he housed that within that tree. The only way that the immaterial evil could get into the material creation was by man disobeying God and ingesting of the fruit of that tree. That's the only way that evil could, that existed in the immaterial creation could have got into the material creation. God does not create evil. He does not create evil. He only creates what is good. Now, someone may say to that statement, well, what about Isaiah 45, 7? There, in Isaiah 45, 7, God is talking and he says, I am the one who prepared light and made darkness who makes peace and creates evils. I am the Lord who does all these things. Somebody say, well, what about that verse? Well, you're taking it out of context. You're taking it out of context. Evils that God is referring to here are the historical judgments that were brought upon nations by the Lord raising up other kingdoms in order to carry out. The context of that whole passage in Isaiah 45 is set within the Lord telling Cyrus, the king of Persia, that he is God's anointed to bring down the kingdom of Babylon. And there's, there was plenty of evils that were perpetuated upon Bab the Babylonians by the Persians when they overthrew their kingdom. God even uses belligerent nations in time to bring about his purpose, which always results in restoration. So the evils that he's talking about there, he's not creating evils. He's using nations to bring down other nations for his own purpose in the context. And they will perpetrate evils on those other nations but he's doing so, and it's always in a view to restoration. So God does not create anything that's evil. He only creates good. So that's not a good argument, Isaiah 45. Now, God wasn't kidding or playing word games when he said in Genesis 1, 29 through 31, that 
every tree that he created, every tree that he created was good for food, and that everything that he created was very good. He wasn't playing games with that. Everything that he created was very good, and every tree that he created was good for food. We saw in Genesis 2, 16 through 17 that God told Adam that he could eat of any tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Of that tree, God strictly commanded Adam not to eat. Don't eat of that tree. The word for eat that appears three times in the Greek and the Septuagint in verses 16 and 17 is esthio, E-S-T-H-I-O, esthio. And this word is used 20 times from Genesis 2.16 through Genesis 3.22. It's used 20 times in that small little passage of Scripture. And that's the whole narrative beginning with God commanding Adam not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and going through the willful sin of Adam in disobeying by eating of it. That's that whole narrative there. That word, esthio, is used 20 times. Then it continues through that to the interchange between God and all the parties involved, those being Satan or the serpent, Eve, and then lastly, Adam, in that order. After the Lord addresses the serpent and the woman, he finally addresses Adam in Genesis 3.17. This is the New English translation of the Septuagint. Genesis 3.17. This is God speaking. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, of this one alone, not to eat from it. Cursed is the earth in your labors. With pains you will eat of it all the days of your life. Cursed is the earth in your labors. Through the through the decision to eat of the tree which God commanded Adam not to eat from, sin, death, and a curse was brought upon all the material creation. That which was previously in the immaterial creation because of Lucifer's disobedience has now invaded the material creation through Adam's disobedience. Romans 5.12. But this wasn't any surprise to God because he knew what would happen before he created anything, whether immaterial or material. He knew it was going to happen this whole time. And yet he still created it anyway. That blows my mind. Knowing what would happen he still chose to create anyway. 
knowing the stakes that he would have to endure. He created it anyway. Knowing both the immaterial and material creation would go astray and need to be redeemed, God in his supra-mundane absoluteness became the creator. Knowing this beforehand, remember, absoluteness, he didn't need anything. He was sufficient in himself. Knowing this beforehand, that the immaterial and material creation would need to be redeemed, he created it anyway and became the creator. Then the creator entered into his creation and took on creatureliness in order to bring it all back. I previously stated that the context around the subject of eating can range from blessing and commendation to criticism and cursing. In this case of Adam eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we clearly see that the subject around eating, in this case, is a curse. But God would provide a champion to deal with this curse, as he informs the serpent in Genesis 3.15. There we learn that the devil, who was the serpent, would bruise this champion's heel, but the Lord would crush the serpent's head, meaning, meaning, God would remove Satan's power. Now, let's take what we've just looked at in Genesis and go into the New Testament. The Greek word estheo, that's used 20 times from Genesis 2.16 through Genesis 3.22, appears 65 times in the New Testament Greek. 65 times, that same word estheo. It's used in 15 verses, specifically that talk about Jesus eating. One of which appears in Matthew eleven nineteen when Jesus is speaking about that generation and their per- perception of John the Baptist and himself. In verse 18, Jesus says, For John came neither eating nor drinking. And they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look, a man who's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Now, this is a passage that we'll get into in subsequent messages, but it's just a little thought-provoking preview because this means a whole lot more than it appears to on the surface. It means a whole lot more. Today, 
We're going to follow this thread that we started to pull in Genesis with Adam. As I said, this same Greek word, estheo, that's used in the Septuagint when speaking about Adam eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, is used in multiple passages speaking about Christ eating. Two of those passages just happen to be during the authentic Passover meal. And they are Matthew 26, verses 21 and 26, and Mark 14, verses 18 and 22. In Matthew 26, 21, and Mark 14, 18, the writers inform us that they were eating, estheo. This is when Jesus announced to them, who were eating with him, again, Estio, that somebody would betray him. One of them there, he said, one of you here is going to betray me. And we all betray Jesus in sin, just as Adam did in the garden. But listen to what Jesus does after he prophesies that one of them will betray him. In Mark 14, 22, as they were eating, estheo, as they were eating, he took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. That was his response to one of them betraying him broke the bread, gave it to them, said, this is my body. Matthew adds a little more to his account as he documents this scene in Matthew twenty six twenty one, And it goes on to say, now as they were eating, estheo, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat. This is my body. Take, eat. This is my body. The Greek word phago for eat, P-H-A-G-O, when Jesus commands the disciples to take and eat, this is my body. That word eat in that little phrase right there is the word fago. And it's related to estheo. But fago is used most often in the New Testament. If I remember correctly, it was used 97 times in the New Testament Greek. This word phago is the Greek word that's used in our launching passage of Luke twenty-two fifteen, And he said to them, with intense longing, I have longed to eat. That's that word phago. To eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Now, in Matthew 26, 20, 21, as they were all eating... 
Jesus commands the disciples, saying, take, eat. This is a command, by the way. It's in, it's in, it's in the in, in imperative. Take, eat. This is my body. In Genesis 2.17, God commanded Adam not to eat. Not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But now Christ is commanding the disciples to eat of the bread, which represents his body. Why? Why do I even bring that up? Jesus, the one who from his supra-mundane absoluteness became the creator, had now entered into his creation taking on flesh. He did so for a specific purpose, and that was to become the substitute for all creation. By having sin judged in his own body, that's why he said, this is my body. That is the sin that was once only in the immaterial creation, but now has infiltrated the material creation through the disobedience of Adam in the garden. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by one man's obedience, the many were made righteous in Romans 8.19. Now, lest you think that that word, many, is just a portion of humanity, I know that you here don't. But the previous verse in verse 18 puts that argument to rest. Because that says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. But that's just humanity. Paul's talking about here. That's just humanity. What about the immaterial creation that first had sin? What about that? Well, that's cleansed as well, as we see in Colossians 1.20, where we read that everything was reconciled, whether on earth or in heaven, by Jesus making peace through the blood of his cross. Also, 1 John 3.8 tells us the devil was sinning from the beginning. And the reason this passage made more sense to me than it ever did when I was doing this study. The reason the Son of God appeared in the flesh was to destroy the works of the devil. What were those works? It was the sin that was in the immaterial creation that infiltrated the material creation. That's the works. It's not like, oh, the devil caused me to hit somebody over the head today. That's not the works of the devil. The works of the devil was the original sin that happened in the immaterial creation. That's why the Son of God appeared, to destroy that. He cleanses it all. He got it all. 1 John 3, 8 made more sense to me now than it ever has because of this study that the Spirit took me on. So 
So Jesus not only redeems humanity by his sacrifice, but also the immaterial creation that fell previous to the material creation. In addition to this, the curse that was brought upon Adam and all creation in Genesis 3.17 was taken by Christ as he hung between heaven and earth on the cross, Galatians 3.13. There Paul tells us that Christ became a curse for us because cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. That is the same Greek word that is used. Same Greek word that is used in Genesis 3.17 about the curse that went on to Adam. Christ became that curse for us. Death was also defeated when Christ was raised from the dead. Luke 24, 5, in connection with 1 Corinthians 15, 55 through 57. He tasted death for everyone in Hebrews 2, 9, to stay on our subject of eating. He tasted death. I don't think that that phrase that the Hebrew writer put in there, he tasted death was just, maybe I'll just put in he tasted death. I think it was for a reason because it goes back to the garden. He tasted death for everyone. He undoes what Adam did in his disobedience and then lifts us all up even higher. It's not an accident that the Hebrew writer said he tasted death for everyone. Now, the last thing I'll say, hey, I'm pretty well on time. The last thing I'll say, it's going to tie back to the beginning of our message in an inclusio. Why, with intense longing, did Jesus long to eat the Passover with the disciples before he suffered? Why? Because this was the destination. This was the destination that was what the Trinity agreed upon before the world was made. This was that destination. While in the supra-mundane absoluteness of the triune council prior to becoming the creator... This destination was determined so that everything that would be created would be redeemed by the work of the Father in the Son by means of the Spirit on the cross. The Creator would be married to the creation in relation. Going back to that word pros, the Creator would be married to the creation in relation. And this was the time at the authentic Passover meal that Jesus would proclaim to his disciples that he would do so. This is when he's telling them, this is what we're going to do. This is what I'm going to do. And I want you to partake of it here.
We haven't finished with the subject of eating. I don't know how many more messages that, that'll cover in the Christ and the Passover series, but it's linked to that intimately because we're still in that upper room, in that scene with Jesus in his disciples, with his disciples. So I don't know how many more messages will be on this subject in this series, but it may be one, it may be more. I don't know, whatever the Lord directs, but that's the end of this one today. So, Father, we thank you that before you created anything, in your absoluteness, not needing anything, you decided to become the creator. And then, as the creator, you came into your creation and took on creatureliness to bring us back from the depths that we fell to, to rise us higher than we could have been otherwise, because now we are joined with you, even as your son said, I and you and you and me. Father, we don't even realize what heights that you have taken us to by doing what you have done. But Father, please give us more understanding as we continue to look into your word so that we can rightly worship you and your son through the means of God the Spirit giving us understanding. We ask all these things in the name of our Great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen.